Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz, Adam, I was feeling the exam tension in the air for the first time in a long time. It's just it's just out in the environment like oh, the viruses that are ramming their way through everywhere right now. <laughs> I'm just, like it because you can be walking around campus and, and at any point a professor will jump out and test you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> you cannot pass until you answer this. One thousand words on the Magna Carta. This obtuse question. <laughs> but I'm not even in history. Oh, that's too bad. This te- this finals were fifty percent of your mark. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You'll be weeping by the time I'm done with you. Oh, you thought you were going to graduate in spring 2025? <laughs> <laughs> Those dreaded words, unable to continue. Oh, no, I think I made it. Should be okay. You may want to see your court your your course advisor. Mm. <laughs> Uh, this horror movie's writing itself, anyway. Yeah, uh, <laughs> every year, every semester. Yeah. Open Source is a CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show, and you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world, and we sometimes interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Kitchener Centre MPP-elect Ashlyn Clancy. The Green Party of Ontario now has a caucus of two in the legislature, so what will that look like when Clancy takes her seat in the new year? She's going to tell us about that, which will be at the bottom half of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about a few news items from the last week, including conspiracies. We love them. We hate them. And more of us believe in them than you might think. And we're going to talk about that. But first, uh, back to Gaza. Uh, most uh, When we were kind of taking a break from this newsy segment last week, it was mostly uh, about the ceasefire and how long the ceasefire would go on. Uh, so much for that, because uh, after one extension, one two-day extension of the ceasefire, uh, the shooting war started again. Uh, to some uh, reports, even more brutal than it was before, uh, the concentration now seems to be in the southern part of Gaza, which is where everyone in the northern part of Gaza was told to evacuate to uh, a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the Israeli Defense Forces are now... Uh, in the process of trying to take the largest city in the southern end of Gaza, which is uh, Khan Yunus. Uh, that's also ha- just so happens to be where uh, Yaha Sinwar lives, who is uh, basically the um, Gaza commander for Hamas. Uh, reportedly, uh, in at least a couple of sources, uh, the IDF is, has surrounded his house. Uh, what is different this time, though, is that the humanitarian crisis in Gaza seems to be getting more attention. Um, even the United States, which has had the infamous, uh, in some quarters, hug BB strategy, has uh, had to essentially come out and say that the Israel forces needs to take it down a notch, if not several notches, uh, including uh, a pretty scathing uh, rebuke of Israel policy on Tuesday when the State Department announced that uh, they were putting travel bans on several pro-settlement uh, organizers uh, who are operating in the West Bank because there's been an increase in violence in the West Bank while all attention has been turned to Gaza. So uh, if you thought the ceasefire might make the situation less hot, uh, surprise, it might actually be more hot. Yeah, and it sounds like the 
the U.S. is using the threat of the funding being pulled mm-hmm. to try and get some movement there in terms of the slaughter that's going on. And it's it's the agreement's almost universal that it's awful. But I mean, the breaking news today, and we're recording on Wednesday, is that the funding bill that includes Ukraine, Ukraine and and Israel, has been stalled in the U.S. Senate. And the mm-hmm. senators are uh, doing that to try and get more attention paid to the southern border of the U.S. So <clears throat> there's some definite politicking going on there, and it's it's not clear as to how that is going to play out. It's mostly Republicans against and Bernie Sanders, interestingly, who's mm-hmm. obviously hasn't called for ceasefire outright, but has used all other language around it that this should stop. So yeah, it's the death tolls supposedly reached 16,000, probably higher, and 44,000 injured. And the majority of the 16,000 who have been killed have been children. So Mm -hmm. where does this go? That is the question, right? As you said, things, the pummeling resumed, and it's just like, what are we going to do? There seems to be a little bit of movement at the UN. I heard Guterres this afternoon saying that it sounds like he's going to use some kind of special mechanism to try and get some movement in there to get a ceasefire in place. Mm-hmm. But at the rate they're going, which is a glacial rate, uh, it's probably not going to make a difference at this point because they, they've IDF have worked their way pretty much right through Gaza on a map. Khan Yunus, as you were talking about, is very close to the south. And as you said, they told everybody to go south. Now, how much mm-hmm. further south can you go? The only further they can go is out into, well, there are a lot of refugees and such in places now where there are no services. Mm. It looks like they're obviously hoping to push everyone into Egypt or wherever they go or into the sea. It doesn't matter. They don't mm. care. Biblical level or Torah level vengeance at this point. Mm. So, I mean, this is the question. Do they just keep doing that? The, the hospital in Khan Yunus is surrounded. They focus a lot on the hospitals. Yeah. kind of. And uh, again, it, repeating over and over that it's not about the tunnels. The, the hospital is surrounded. It sounds like they're probably going to take that out as well. Mm. But in terms of the tunnels, I saw an, an interesting photo, not verified, making the rounds. So they're saying they're going to flood these tunnels. So, of course, in flooding them with seawater which is readily available will do a complete number on the infrastructure of gaza i don't know to what degree like how Mm. what sort of mechanisms they have in place to to do this flooding but it just seems you know ever it's catastrophe all around it's it's cartoonish levels of super Mm -hmm. villainy and um i mean keep in mind too it's i mean yes it's palestinian people who are suffering um, I mean, 16,000. Again, this all started with the death of 1,400 on October 7th. So now more than 10 times the number of Palestinians have kind of paid the price for Hamas's actions. Um, but I mean, there's also the hostage situation. There, there was leaked audio from some of the freed hostages meeting with Netanyahu, accusing him of putting politics first and, you know, talking about the the poor conditions they were kept in, how they're essentially like laying down on dirty mattresses all day like on a you know not moving um you know in these cramped conditions it it just sounds kind of appalling and so many people are telling Netanyahu and other people in the government like you know i don't know how much longer these people are going to hold on well it's been a week since the last hostages were freed so you know who knows how long those people have to hold on um further um in, enter into this too um 
forget about looking ahead, but you know, looking to the past, the, the New York Times report that came out last week that said that uh, Israeli defenses uh, were aware of this operation in development a year ago. Uh, apparently, somebody was able to get a hold of the Hamas playbook for executing this attack. And uh, even though uh, it, it, Israeli intelligence had the literal manual for the attack, they were still caught unawares. Um, interesting to note that um, John Kirby, who's the National Security Council spokesperson in the U.S., was asked point blank if this um, if this was correct or not, the reporting, and he said he couldn't confirm or deny, which is a tacit confirmation because if it was untrue, he would have said it. But, mm -hmm. you know, obviously you can't embarrass the ally with the fact that they knew an attack was coming a year out and um, were unable to avoid it. Yeah, and that's, yeah, what this red line or whatever it's supposed to be, like, I, I don't know... It's difficult because they're just gonna they're just gonna keep on going. Maybe this funding, mm. even though it's stalled for, uh, let's call it a weird reason. I mean, <laughs> in in Sanders' case, it's for the right reasons, but for the Republicans, it's like they're just trying to to mess with Biden. By the sounds of it, do they? I think it was going to be fourteen billion dollars, which would set them up quite rightly. But I'll, I mean, I, I would. I'm almost sure. In addition to that, there would be weapons and whatnot coming from elsewhere. I'm not sure if that. 14 billion is just cash or is it you know resources as well it's probably a mix of both right yeah but as yeah so where that's going to go it, it may it may shake loose but it, it may also actually make a difference if they can't uh, mm. stock themselves let's say they'll just keep on going as long as they can because israel doesn't have um that many friends that are so generous let's say right right but interestingly and in, in some of the footage and it's horrible i mean the, the i don't i don't think there's been a run of as many weeks with the warnings on on news about what was to come mm. was one woman saying where are the arab nations and i thought that was an interesting comment yeah because they're just sort of seem to be standing back somehow right Whereas in, you know, back at the founding of Israel in the, in the late 40s, 1947, 48, the famous two-state plan from the UN, by the way, uh, that failed, it was the surrounding Arab nations that, that attacked, essentially, right? But now mm. it's like we've come this far, not, nothing's fixed, and it's been endless war ever since. So haven't really heard a lot as to as to why that is. There's There's interventions let's say like Qatar doing the negotiations and turkey's in an interesting position and in that it's kind of on the fence being a nato nation but also trying to support palestinians but of course turkey's not super innocent either so that, that this is the question it's like is it going to be lacking divine intervention which obviously isn't going to happen although some believe actually <laughs> They, the drive for it is is for divine reasons. Let's say, yeah, Maybe we shouldn't get too into that. But I, you know, some of the comments that Netanyahu said, like quoting the Old Testament, yeah, we'll, we're just going to kill everybody because it's in the book. But oh my God, where was I going with that? <laughs> yeah, it's it's like where you, you, the cavalry isn't coming for them, right? And it, it may come from another 
I guess, you know, Russia is tied up. China is keeping its distance. So of the larger powers, it's sort of, they're out of the way. This is the question. Does it become, there's, there's always the grumbling about the North and in Lebanon. It's like, is it going to expand? Is the fighting going to expand from up there? But, and then there's the proxies, the Iranian proxies in, yeah. in Yemen and Iraq and Syria who are, you know, taking shots at, uh, U.S. military assets, uh, Israel boats in in uh, in the Gulf, and mm-hmm. you know all it takes is the wrong missile at the right time, and all of a sudden this becomes a much bigger shooting war. Um, and it does sometimes feel like it's heading that way. I think, yeah, I it, it's it's tough to it's tough to suss out where this is going, um, because even you know. I think there was some sort of uh, military analysis that if Israel keeps going in Gaza, maybe that's going until like the end of January till they've kind of like completed operations there. And then there's been rumblings from, uh, from government officials that, you know, once the war in Gaza is quote unquote over, um, they're going to look to eliminate Hamas in other countries. And by that, you know, it sounds a bit like somebody was watching Munich on the weekend. We're going to go to Qatar mm. and we're going to go to Yemen and all these places where the leadership of Hamas is and eliminate them kind of old school. So there is, there is literally a broader question of like, how does this end? Because it sounds like um, they're really pushing for the, like it, it ends when all of Hamas is dead, but the flip side of it is too. And I think Lloyd Austin, the defense sec- uh, U.S. defense secretary made this point is like, Israel's risking well what did he say the the tactical victory for the strategic error which is like they may mm. you know grind Gaza under but I mean how many of tomorrow's Hamas are they creating in the process and I think that seems to be the the long-term vision that's missing from any of this strategy oh for sure I mean wh- whoever's left yeah is is going to side with you know we you know Hamas is problematic obviously but if that's if that's who's on your on your side and it's fighting it then of course you're going to go that way right Mm -hmm. there is no other right now there doesn't seem to be any other option Mm -hmm. but the other question too is is there going to be anything left in gaza at the rate that they're going this is apocalyptic stuff yeah infrastructure is gone buildings gone uh thousands dead injured like it's just where is this going to go right so that's we're at the it's it's at the tipping point right now yeah they're in ground operations you're saying that they have the Hamas guy's house surrounded, and I heard that earlier as well. But it's like, okay, how long does that operation take? Right? It's so. What's come out with your hands up, or are they just they'll just blow it up as they've been yeah. doing with with every single thing? Universities, hot, you know, you name it, residential, just blow it up. Yeah. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's right at that point where it's somebody going to step a UN presumably or somebody going to step in and say, look, you have to stop doing this. Is the American funding being cut going to stop it? Cause I don't, there's not much else that will. Yeah. They will lob everything, absolutely everything they have at Gaza until there's nothing left at this rate. Right. So, well, the pressure could come internally as well um, from, from people in Israel. Like, you know, this is enough. Like we, we just kind of want our friends and family to come home. Because I'd heard that Netanyahu's uh, corruption trial is is back on, yep. Which I thought was odd, but at the same, it's he's, he's probably happy, right? That this is in a weird way mm-hmm. that there's enough of a distraction to distract from that. 
right? Yeah. So yeah. Who knows? Who knows? Which is the uh, standard operating procedure of uh, conspiracy theorists everywhere. But <laughs> uh, a surprising poll from Lege uh, suggests that some of us may be more susceptible to conspiracy theories than you think. Actually, one in every five, according to their survey. And it's an online survey, so take it with a bit of a grain of salt. But I mean, Lege is a respected polling firm, so they know how, what they're doing. One in five Canadians believe in at least one conspiracy theory. And I think one of the confusing things about this that may people may take the wrong way is like, is it like the jokey conspiracy theories? Like hmm. we didn't land on the moon or is it like kind of deeply serious conspiracy theories? Like I don't believe in climate change. And it, it, that, that, that's the thing I found with this poll is like, we seem to like, like nobody's killing each other because we don't think Lee Harvey Oswald killed JFK, if you know what I mean. On the other yeah. hand, people have been killed because they thought the results of the 2020 U.S. presidential election were fake. Yeah, there is a range. It sounds like they asked a range of questions. It's not yet Mikey and the Pop Rocks versus right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I think they found Mikey eventually. But what is most interesting to me out of this is what number one is. Mm hmm which was 55% saying that the mainstream media is manipulating the info that it disseminates. Mm -hmm. That's the top. It beats Kennedy. It beats UFOs. Yeah. It beats was uh, Princess Diana or Lady Diana killed intentionally or was, you know, was it an assassination or whatnot? <laughs> is there a cancer cure in a lab somewhere? The yeah. media lying is number one, mm -hmm. the most believed thing. So that was interesting to say the least mm -hmm. uh because i guess i mean this this is the thing with stuff like this but particularly with the media because we're in it mm -hmm. right it's like i think f folk have a, a problem separating editorial out from news a lot of it is to do with social media in my view right mm -hmm. Every, everything is a tiny editorial now up to and including people regurgitating uh conspiracy theories right mm -hmm. So the problem in differentiating that has led to people having losing faith mm -hmm. in the media almost completely. But yet, you know, you used to look in the paper to read the horoscope, say, <laughs> uh, which, yeah, I don't know if that's just horoscopes aren't really conspiracy, but it's like, you know, you, you actually, you believe that thing right. what's going on or luck. Another good example, right? Is do you believe in luck? Well, it's one of those things like you take from it, what you want if if you read your horoscope and there's something in there that makes you think huh that is happening to me you you believe in their reality as a, right. as opposed to one you read where it doesn't make any sense and it kind of it's water off a duck's back you remember well, this is like that's like the, confirmation bias right it's like that's, you're yeah, saying yeah, yeah yeah but that you, when it comes to the let's say the convoy and the f trudeau types right mm. it's like you dislike trudeau or somebody so much that any info that backs that the theory right and it generally always veers into conspiracy theory with a grain of truth right mm -hmm. that just validates it right and and i would say at this point paul is probably a master of tapping into that right mm -hmm. he, he rides the line he's right in the line of he takes shots at the media all the time mm -hmm. every time he's in front of a microphone right it's like Oh, the CBC and well, we've seen it. You'll see it on any given day. 
and I think that just feeds it. That just adds fuel to people thinking that the media is is you know manipulating stories, right? And and to be fair, I suppose there is some truth to that, right? Right. I'm. I'm. What what I questioned about that sort of like factoid, not 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 necessarily the percentages that Leje was presenting, but I wonder how many of those people who said that they think that the media manipulates the the information they're presenting. Do they mean that the media is making up a story and presenting it as truth, or do they mean that the media has a slant, like they're presenting factual information, but it's presented in a certain way? You know, think about visit our last story. Um, if if you're talking about you know Israeli casualties and the effect on Israel, um, while not talking about like Palestinian ca- or or making these things kind of secondary, like the casualty rates in uh gaza or the effect of israeli bombs on uh neighborhoods in gaza um get seeing a bit of that this week um with a lot of these reports about the sexual violence that hamas has been doing it seems like it, it seems like and again i'm not accusing anyone of anything but it just when you see reports of that and you don't see reports of sort of like the long-term kind of more passive violence in Gaza where there's not enough water, where there's not enough to eat, where it's there, there's not enough jobs to go around, um, when there's not enough resources and the hospital's not getting enough power and, you know, it's difficulty accessing the internet and other information. It, it does seem like we kind of value one type of violence and suffering more than others. And if that's what people mean, that the media has a slant, okay. But do the, are they really out there saying that you know, Catherine Tate is up on the top floor of the CBC telling, you know, um, Adrian Arsenault what to, what to, I mean, there was that interview on Monday where uh, they were talking about CBC cuts where should, should quell any idea about that. You know, somebody tweeted, you know, what other network does the CEO go on like the flagship newscast and have the anchor grill them. Um, but I, I do think I, I the, the 55% number I just found interesting because I do wonder how much of that is a lack of understanding about what media process is and what bias is um, and whether like something like that, I think could be fixed with education mm-hmm. as opposed to people who believe in flat earth. And at this point, I don't, I don't know what to do for you. <laughs> and of course, all the cuts, which is why uh, yeah. there was that discussion on CBC and, and everywhere, local news, whatever. It can only get worse. But yeah, do you remember when conspiracy things were fun? Like oh yeah, the Loch Ness monster. And yep, Hollow Bigfoot, yep. UFOs in particular. I mean, that whole run of the X Files was based on conspiracy, right? Oh yeah. But I w- mean, were we a bit more savvy thirty years ago, or however many years ago when these things were we able to filter better then and just kind of accept that this is a fun thing it's not really real or is it i mean there was always somebody there mm-hmm. was always somebody back in the day who believed these things but now when you see these numbers it's like wow it's like half you know half the people well i think it's the large numbers is like hmm, really i think it's the flattening of the the like the the information ecosystem now anyone can be a news source anyone can be an, and and uh, there are ways that this is very, very good, but the flip side is that um, there are so many sources of information now. You can cherry pick. You know, if you're watching the National or the Agenda or Omar Sajidina, and he's pre- they're presenting information you don't like, you can always go to 
you know, Facebook or YouTube or TikTok or wherever and find someone who can reinforce those ideas. Um, I mean, it's it, kind of the fall of gatekeeping has sort of precipitated this. And I don't think, again, I'm not saying that's entirely bad. Certainly, I've been a beneficiary of knocking down the gatekeeping structures hmm. by able to go to work for myself. But um, again, I think this is where education comes into play. How do you tell the the honest brokers try to do good reporting versus people who are just, you know, Homer Simpson making a bull plop uh, while wearing a paper bag. It's it's tricky. I also thought it was interesting, the political divide in terms of what people believed. It seems Tory voters lead the way in Canada mm-hmm. for believing conspiracy theories. And curiously enough, it's Republicans in the U.S. Mm-hmm. of those that admitted what their political status was in this poll. So bit of a pattern there. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's an unfortunate pattern and sort of plays into what you're saying about Pierre Polivar, who is, I, I mean, I wonder what he's going to do when Justin Trudeau's not around for him to, to you know, kick in the shins anymore. Like that, there was that video he posted lot this week about like housing, like in the eight years of Trudeau, housing's exploded. It's like, well, a lot of that isn't really Justin Trudeau's fault. And again, this kind of plays into how you read the information. It's, you know, yeah, Justin Trudeau's been prime minister of eight years, but he doesn't really control a lot of the levers of housing. So it's, uh, least, well, Poly- yeah. Probably I will just side with the secret global elite world government once he gets the job, right? <laughs> and then the cycle continues. <laughs> no, no, dog. He hates the World Economic Forum. Um, he oh, he'll he- go. He'll <laughs> oh, I know, go. I know, I know, he'll, I know he'll go. Oh, he'll be fine. He'll come up with some excuse. No, I looked into it. They're good guys. <laughs> it's. Yeah, I learned the handshake. I have to go. I learned the handshake, <laughs> guys. I checked it out. We just hung out in the woods for a day. We sang songs, and you know, we took turns, you know, peeing on a bear-shaped mummy, and then we set it on fire, and it was all great. That's uh, and when when you hear these things, it's no wonder that a conspiracy comes out of Bilderberg I mean, and all of these things. I right? mean, it's like, yeah, it's. I mean, it 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 does remain like the the best things Alex Jones ever did was like go to, the, you know, that the 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 redwoods and just look at how silly these people are when there are no cameras on. But he probably took the wrong lessons from it. All right, we'll call it a day there and then uh, take our break and we'll come right back with our interview with Ashlyn Clancy or listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. probably recognize that voice and maybe the band but not the song although the song should be familiar it's i am a rock originally by simon and garfunkel Hmm. that was april wine's version april wine can con staple band their lead singer miles goodwin passed away this week really bad week for the classic rockers including chad allen from the guess who Mm -hmm. and that era and uh, denny lane from moody blues and wings as well 
mm-hmm. all within a few days of each other. So I don't think it's going to be a good decade for the entertainers of the 60s and 70s. Oh, and Norman Lear, that was today, too, but he was good age, too. Hey, 101. 101. Amazing. Yeah, he's, um, I mean, same era. So it's, uh, well, I mean, he'd been working for years and years, but, you know, he took on uh, peak boomer bigger, shows was bigger cultural relevance. Yeah, in the 70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's sad. Um, I'm drawing a, a red arm. I'm draw I'm drawing a black armband on my old Q107 sticker right now. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it was Bohemian Grove. That was what I was referring to before the break. I took an opportunity <laughs> to look it up. Is the when Alex Jones broke into Bohemian Grove. Um, <laughs> leaving conspiracy theories aside, uh, maybe some people think it's a conspiracy that the Green Party won in Kitchener Center. I don't think so. And uh, I know many people who worked on that campaign who also don't think so. A lot of hard work went into that victory last Thursday when Ashlyn Clancy became the new MPP for Kitchener Center. That means Kitchener Center is represented green, both at the federal level and at the provincial level. Only one other riding in this country can make the same claim. Um, It also means taking a orange piece off the board and replacing it with a green piece. And it means that our MPP, Mike Schreiner, has a buddy uh, they can caucus together. We can now have a green caucus room. That's not just Mike Schreiner's office at Queens <laughs> Park. Uh, I'm sure he's very excited about that. The green Christmas party is going to be even bigger at Queens Park next year. Um, once Ashlyn Clancy sworn in, but for now we do have her on our show and we talk about what it all means. So uh, here's the interview that I did with Ashlyn Clancy earlier this week. Okay, uh, Kitchener Center MPP elect Ashlyn Clancy. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Adam. <laughs> uh, first, uh, I guess I don't want to come straight out and say like, "How did you do it?" Because I mean, that's there are a lot of different factors. But I mean, one of the things I'll note that I noted in sort of watching this happen is um, before the writ was drawn up, uh, Mike announced that you were going to be coming on as deputy leader and it, it was at that point i was thinking to myself what does the green party of ontario know about what's going on in kitchener center that i don't so let me phrase it this way um how like what was the confidence level kind of going into the by-election for you that there was some real momentum in kitchener center for the green party well, I've been part of Mike Morris's campaign, and I think folks have really appreciated his approach to politics and same with Mike Schreiner, you know, so, I mean, if it was a distant thing that happened far away, you know, people might not really see how it's relevant to their everyday lives. But I think having elected in a neighboring riding a green and then locally as a federal green, that context isn't isn't uh, is pretty unique for Greens. We do really well when people see what it means to elect a Green. It's a, such a hard slog to get in for the first time. But I was like, because of we, you know, because Mike Morris had really connected well with the residents of Kitchener Center, and I was part of that. Those two campaigns, I saw the swell of of hope and involvement in community building and connection with with uh, residents. And, you know, that really helped us start from a different place locally. Um, of course, Greens, we always prepare ourselves to lose <laughs> just as a coping <laughs> me- mechanism. But um, I'm a bit pragmatic in that, you know, I, I really felt like we really had a great shot or I wouldn't have made that step, you know. Mm. Um, a lot goes on the line when you enter into a campaign that 
puts every your whole life on on the side. So, you know, I I was pretty hopeful from the beginning that we had a good shot. You know, I mean, you never know at the end right. of the day where the chips will land. There's so many factors out of your control. But in terms of the context, uh, myself feeling prepared as a candidate, and I know what kind of campaigns the Greens can put on, I felt like we had a good combination. Uh, I did get a chance to talk to Mike for this show a couple of weeks ago. Um, he made it clear that you were not riding his coattails, that you had your own coattails <laughs> you were riding. But I mean, th- this is an unusual circumstance. Somebody pointed out, corrected me, that you know, this is not the first time where there's a provincial and a federal re- representative, yeah. both from the Green Party. But it, it is still a very it, it, you know, a unique phenomenon. That here now in Kitchener Center, we have green representation at a provincial and federal level. And I'm, I'm curious, how do you read that? And and does that carry with any kind of like additional responsibility aside from just representing your constituents well, but to sort of like make a stake about what um, unified green leadership in one riding looks like? Well, I mean, I'm not filling any shoes per se, but like Mike (laughs) Morris works so hard. And so people have a pretty different experience of what their politician will do in their community. So, I mean, that's kind of how I've been throughout the campaign and throughout my my work on city council is really created opportunities to listen to the issues that are facing people, be present in the community, whether it be stakeholder meeting with stakeholders, meeting with residents, um, taking those issues forward. So, you know, I think the way we do politics sets a pretty high bar. Um, but I mean, it's it's a, such a good bar. You know, people should expect <laughs> that their politicians will work their darndest to respond and be relevant and connected to the realities our community faces. So I don't know if that's kind of answering your question, but, you know. No, it does. But, you know, the the, the high bar is, um, I mean, the high bar comes with high expectations now. And I think, you know, we're still several years away from a, a full-blown provincial election. But it's, you know, it's easy to look at the situation now and say that, uh, the Green Party has a beachhead in southwestern Ontario. You know, two ridings pretty much right next to each other uh, have green representation, uh, a green representative at the federal level. Uh, I think there will be a lot of expectation um, on you, on Mike, to sort of see that grow further. Um, and I, I I wonder if you are prepared for that. Because, you know, again, there's the expectation of what you will do once you're in the legislature, what you will have to do on a daily basis for your constituents. But, you know, there are going to be a lot of pundits like me who are like saying, you know, we got two. Can we get to three? Can we get to four? Like yeah. somebody said to me, like, we can get six in 2026. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> it's I appreciate yeah. the enthusiasm, but um, that's that is that's that's as much a big leap from going from one to two. I think, though, you know, each time we run a big campaign like this, we learn so much, you Mm. know, about what we can take for granted, what we can't, where we need to invest, you know, um, don't get me wrong, this is a special circumstance in some ways, right? But in other ways, not so much, you know, like, um, I think, uh, you know, we came close in a lot of ridings, and I think we need to be like thoughtful about the road ahead. But I think definitely in terms of speaking to the issues no one's speaking about and addressing the realities in a way that's really honest, you know, Mm. as the climate crisis intensifies Mm -hmm. and political parties are so bogged down against to just follow the wind or like spread a lie, to be honest, when it comes to 
what industry like oil and gas profiteering is really about, you know, I think more and more people are getting kind of turned off of those bigger parties and we provide a hopeful alternative. So I think a lot of what our election shared was, you know, I think PC and liberal, we saw, you know, these are the two biggest parties in our country and they barely showed up. Like, don't get me wrong. I know they can put on a bigger show, but I mean, it's a by-election like, you know, you could like they there was there's usually bandwidth to go, give it a go. Right. But I think it, it speaks to kind of how the community and I think many Canadians and people in Ontario are feeling about some of those old line parties. We vote strategically. And that's probably why Greens sometimes uh, struggle to earn that trust. But I think a lot of people want to vote green, but they don't feel like they have the permission to. So if we can create a context where people can really, you know, and I think this was a perfect example of people uh, really seeing the value of a bit more of an independent voice and a bit more of an honest and caring, right. connected voice for right. their community is of, of value. So I, I it is interesting, this race, because it is one by election, but I think, you know, for the four main parties, anyway, I think anyway, uh, anyway, the vote would have went. It would have been a strategic vote, and I kind of want to get to sort of the the bigger piece of that, which I think is Kitchener itself, because mm-hmm. um, there was that big protest in front of Ford Fest at Bingham's in September, and yeah. you know you were there with Mike, and yeah. uh, Debbie was there with Catherine Fife, and uh, Kelly Stice was there with one of the Liberal leadership campaign uh, Liberal leader uh, candidates. Um, and then it was a few weeks after that, Doug Ford came out and said, well, yeah, I guess, I guess everyone's right. We'll, we'll fix the green belt thing that we broke. I wonder how much of that, and it with, with you winning in Kitchener center now, I guess my thinking about this is like, will Kitchener, and again, this is kind of looking in the crystal ball, but will Kitchener sort of be viewed as, you know, Doug Ford's what? <laughs> ironically Waterloo, um, to use the Napoleonic reference, but you know, it does seem like that was the tipping point where everything seemed to start to go wrong for Doug Ford. I think what greens do really well is mobilize, you know, like um, we don't speak into an echo chamber. We're not just talking to the people in our party. Like we're, we're a hopeful energized group. And I think we really value our relationships in the community. So, you know, yes, all those political parties were there, but uh, you know, we are, I think if you look at the earlier green belt rallies, like we were really, blazing a trail in partnership with communities so like i never and that to me is the biggest difference is like you know no offense to the ndp per se but a lot of their marketing during this um election was merit style save the green belt and you know to Mm. me i i think we really understand our place in connection with community and when in connection with stakeholders so don't get me wrong like we have a pretty charged environmental community of different groups working on different things um and they're pretty organized like um if you look at my city inbox when it comes to our boundary the regional boundary i've probably got 100 emails in there waiting to you know so I mean, don't get me wrong. Do, does government always listen, right? But um, but I think that kind of intensity and determination around protecting our planet and uh, local thoughtful decision making, I think, is really powerful in our community. And maybe that's why Greens were elected because they want that connection. Um, they want to feel like we take their voice forward. We don't claim their victories. We echo their concerns and are one of many parties working on these issues. 
I will concede the point. There were a lot of green shirts outside Big Amends. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're good at rallies. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, I want to look ahead a bit to uh, what's coming up in the legislature. Um, do you know when you'll be sworn in? Is that, is that something that has been uh, made, brought to your attention yet? No date yet uh, after the 15th. So. Okay. So I, I think the the last day of the legislature for the year is the 15th. If I remember yeah, correctly. I won't yeah. be. I'll be sworn in while we are not sitting. So okay. I'll sit yeah. after family day weekend. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um. So so that we know that. Again, looking to the expectations. Uh. And and to Mike's credit, he's made a pretty big impact being a caucus of one. Um. I'm sure the two of you have talked about it, but in, in terms of what kind of an impact that a caucus of two can have, what is a legislature with two green members going to look like when? Uh, th that first session after the family day weekend. Yeah, I mean, we work hard our tails off to build relationships and push forward good green policy, right? So, I mean, he'll be working on his things and I'll be working on mine. I think we have different strengths. He's a, a farmer with a small business. I'm an education worker with a social work background and a city council background. So, you know, I think we'll have different strengths to bring. And I mean, it's Mike, you know, as a party leader and a beacon for a lot of climate related conversations, I think we'll appreciate that we can spread out a bit more and like cover more ground as a party and as as elected officials on these issues that we value i'm trying to phrase this question carefully because i want to get it right but are you going to be working on your question period response for the, the 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 first time you get up in question period and you ask the premier a question and he comes back at you with some half researched bit of kitchener trivia and or if he calls you miss green <laughs> have you worked on a good response? I will, so I will take Miss Green as a compliment. You know, I think history will smile on those of us that are thinking forward when it comes to our climate. Um, and yeah, I'll I'll correct his stats. I mean, if he responds to me, <laughs> I, we'll see. Um, but yeah, I think part of the reason why I'm doing this is to challenge Doug Ford and a lot of the policies he's pushing forward that I think cause harm to community, cause harm to people's affordability and the future of our planet. So, um, you know, place to live and livable planet, like, you know, mm. and I will, I'm, I'm prepared with some, you know, uh, reality checks if, if you <laughs> want to that. But yeah, I, I can take a joke. It's fine. Like I, I feel like there's so much banter and then like some of it's really unhealthy and unproductive. And I don't feel like that's a worthwhile way to spend my time is to sling right. mud. So, you know, and I don't think that's our style. We've we've kind of tried to show people and com like communicate to voters that we want to bring care and respect and honesty and thoughtfulness to politics. So I don't anticipate just spending an hour throwing things back and forth. I will correct people, but I will continue to challenge them to, um, to uh, face facts when they mm. might feel like just talking about carbon tax, which is a federal <laughs> policy, is the only way we're going to spend our time. To me, that's, you know, confusing. So, yeah, I, I, I do wonder because, like, I've been at Queen's Park at times when things sort of aren't as, I guess, hot button or it's just kind of like regular order stuff. And you know, you you, you sit in on question period, and it's it's a lot of noise, even more so than when you're watching it on TV. But <laughs> we we do seem 
uh, at least on the conservative side, the government side of the bench, they do seem sort of bogged down in these um, pre-cooked talking points about, you know, if we want affordability, we need to get rid of the carbon tax or it, it, it just, I guess you were there at the legislature on Monday, I guess maybe getting the size <laughs> of the place, you know, when you, you sit in the gallery and look at what a question period looks like, you know, um, any ambivalence, like any kind of like, well, how am I supposed to make sense of kind of this kind of insanity that I'm kind of parachuting into? <laughs> That's kind of the front curtain of everything. I think there's so much that happens behind the scenes, right? So my yeah. job is to deliver for Kitchener Center. And that means working with others in the region and PPs that are in the surrounding ridings to maybe advocate for the region, you mm. know, and there's a lot to be said for that. Um, my job is to serve people well. I'm a social worker. I got that. You know, uh, my job is to build relationships across party lines so that I can get forward the legislation that and the, the policy changes that I think are going to help people across the province. So all that relationship building, all that advocacy for my community, all that service I'm prepared for. I mean, sure, I have to sit through and listen to people insult each other. But, you know, I think there's parts of everybody's job that they could they think is a, is not helpful. But, you know, here we are. Uh, right. I don't have to contribute to that. But I'm OK with if it like I've done a lot of things that make me very uncomfortable because I really want to work on a more livable planet for my community. So what's the first thing on your agenda? I'm just, I've been horrified in this past year to uh, work alongside folks facing rent eviction, uh, stakeholders, mm. residents. To me, the homelessness crisis is now. It's emergent. It's an emergency. There's so many factors that play into that. Accountability is one that I think as any justice-loving person doesn't make sense that you can make someone homeless and make 19% on your investment. To me, mm. I've, I'm a business grad. It's always troubled me that people can make a lot of money off of causing a lot of harm. And to me, that's not okay. So I'll be digging into learning more about how the landlord tenant board could have some teeth or how uh, we can empower municipalities to, um, to build their toolbox and the province to build their toolbox to prevent people from being displaced who pay affordable rents. And, and to me, this is an unfair way to make money. I heard some commentary um, from from people in your area that uh, you won because you're the Yimby candidate. Um, I'm wondering how much of that you, you sort of take away um, you, whether you would sort of characterize yourself as the Yimby candidate and whether like, like what Yimby means to you in, like in, in practical terms when, when you're talking to people about um, getting housing going, what, what is, what is a Yimby? Uh, yeah. I mean, we're pro densification. So like the, the, like not, bulldozer style like I have voted stuff down when I felt like there was a real ignorance to the people who were being displaced mm. um, I am very anti-displacement so I'd love to see displacement bylaws where people are rehoused in the new development I feel like that's reasonable um, however I know lots of things have been voted down by my my competition and by other city councillors and by other councils across the province that actually make a lot of sense in this day and age. We have people who are overhoused, we have people who are underhoused, and we have space within our countryside line that could be better utilized. And so we will push forward uh, density, uh, reasonable density that we think is low-hanging fruit to bring supply onto our housing market as soon as possible. 
And so, you know, I have voted for higher density because the developer was going to add in more affordable units, right? Um, my, my competitor did not, you know? And so I think when I'm talking about affordable housing, I'm talking about it in a very broad sense. There's many types. I want deeply affordable. I want attainable. I want private sector. I want not-for-profit. So I think sometimes if we get too zeroed in on one way of solving the problem, I think we're missing out on a lot of things that would make it better right now. You know, and I think if I'm, if I really truly want to represent my constituents, I have to think about the people who would potentially live there. Would they mm. appreciate saving $500 on their rent? You mm -hmm. know, I think they would. <laughs> mm -hmm. So even though it's not deeply affordable, like 30% of, of income, I have voted for things because it was $500 off. And I think my job isn't to think of my reality as a single, as a person who lives in a single family dwelling. My job is to think about all the residents of Kitchener Center, especially those that are most vulnerable. And I think too often our democratic system in municipalities in the province speak to a one uh, a really uh, privileged elite, uh, 1%. And I don't think that's helpful for the broad needs of the community. Right. And I guess the other piece of this is you have the government side who, and you're going to have a, an answer ready for this, but you know, everything to do with the green belt, everything to do with rewriting um, official plans and MZOs and, and these sorts of things. The government's saying we have to get housing going. So what is the difference between their approach and the approach and, and the approach you're proposing? In terms of you know, getting housing going in a variety of housing going in the in the the short, especially in the short term, but also in the long term. So some of the things they've proposed, I we agree with, like the triplexing bylaw, the like you know the site plan removals for under ten units or what have you. Um, like there's a bunch of densification stuff that they've done to kind of alleviate those small medium developers who just want to, you know, make their house a triplex or whatever. But um, but they're also very pro-sprawl. We are very anti-sprawl. That's how mm -hmm. we differ from the PC government is we think you can build housing within our countryside line without paving over farmland in the places we love. So um, I think they really undermine a lot of our farming economy, our environmental protections, our floodplain stuff. And I think by doing that, you're again, causing harm in it. Like, and, and I think it's, and I think we both know that they were biased, you know, toward right. their supporters. So to me, uh, that's a double whammy. Not only are you making a bad decision for future generations and our food security and um, our water, like we're a community that depends on on groundwater. Right. So like there's a bunch of harms environmentally done. It, it That kind of housing is very costly to municipalities. It's not affordable housing that's built. And then of course the transparency and, and corruption issues that we're seeing is just the blatant priorities for wealthy beneficiaries yeah that was the other piece of this and uh, it'll have to be the, the last question but you know an, a big part of your responsibility as an opposition mpp is is going to be that accountability and um i'm curious have you i mean it's one thing to sort of be on the campaign trail and talk about issues and talk about policy but now there's kind of that extra level of responsibility you're going to have to hold the government to account and mm -hmm. I guess, how how do you expect, to, I mean, how are you planning to do that? Because at the end of the day, they still have more votes than all the opposition parties combined. Is is that going to be the toughest part of your job? Uh, I think we've seen there, 
how quickly they backtrack when they're actually their feet are to the fire. And that was a combined effort between all three parties and the community. So I think we continue to, we will continue to mobilize people. We will continue to trailblaze when it comes to sharing the truth of what's happening and the priorities of this government, like when it comes to the privatization of healthcare, when it comes to opening up of lands, when it comes to removing of uh, effort layers of democracy. Um, I think we will continue to push back on those things. It's tricky. You know, we have to work with people and then also hold them accountable, but um, that's, that's our job. So yeah, I think we'll continue to make sure that the media and that the community is really aware of what's going on and then do our best to mobilize um, the, as parties and elected officials and community to, because I mean, I think in those PC, like I think the, the backtrack of the green belt initially came probably not even with the RCMP, but when their caucus met. Mm. So if you have a bunch of farmers, you know, mm. speaking to their their MPP about what the heck are you doing? Now my kids can't buy land, you know, uh, all of a sudden, you know, they, they talk to the premier and they say, what the heck, man, you're screwing us over. We're not going to get reelected. Right. So um, I think we got to keep that up. Well, uh, you just heard from a true trailblazer, uh, everyone, uh, the second <laughs> party MPP in Ontario. Um, but for now, we'll have to wrap it there. Ashlyn Clancy, thank you so much for your time today. And congratulations on your uh, success and uh, best of luck uh, when you get sworn in in the new year. Thanks, Adam. Keep in touch. And hello, listeners. I appreciate our political nerds out there and hopefully you'll keep talking to us and we'll, we'll continue to serve you well. Perfect. Uh, and once again, that was Ashlyn Clancy, uh, recipient of the open sources bump. Uh, Cause she did, <laughs> she did appear in the summer. She, you know, she after mm -hmm. she was acclaimed, it's a she, thing. she did the show. Yeah, no, it's real. Oh. It's real. It's definitely real. <laughs> Ask around. You uh, come on the show. You'll get elected. Maybe uh, it's uh, if you're elected, you got elected because <laughs> it's yeah, it's uh, <laughs> definitely not a conspiracy theory. Um, <laughs> Although. <laughs> all right, let's get out of here. That's it for this week's show. We hope you liked it. If you want to listen to our show again, you can download it every Monday from our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite app like Apple, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. You can stay connected to us on social media. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. I shall return on Wednesday at 3 p.m. for the movie review show that I co-host called End Credits. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson or go to my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Twitter, and Blue Sky. And if you're joining us at our normal time, on a Thursday at 5, please stay tuned for Turtle Island Underground coming up at 6. Which is just a few minutes from now. And you can hear that along with many great programs right here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. This show will, of course, be back next Thursday at 5 p.m. for another edition of Open Sources. And we will see you then.
Thank you.